Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another Racing Matters podcast. Um, I'm joined as ever by the intrepid Becky. Um, Becky, I think this is number 12. Is that right? I think so. It's hard to keep count. That's pretty good going. That's almost three months of lagging our way through (laughs) (laughs) racing podcast. Um, We've done all right so far. We've We've had some fun guests so far. We've never had anyone, I don't think, apart from people who've um, sat on a horse recreationally. Well, I suppose Ali Vance had done modern pentathlon, um, but I think it's good uh, finally time for us to bring in someone at the sharp end. Um, so I'd like to welcome Martin Wire to the pod. Afternoon, Mark. Afternoon, how are we doing? So you've done 11 of these and you're only just asking me to do it now. I know where <laughs> I figure on the list then. Um, yeah, and that that's yeah, sorry mate. Um no, it wasn't wasn't for any reason other than um we thought we'd ease into it gently before before getting into the serious stuff. Um but no, we've we've had some good guests so far, but mainly on the broadcast and the media and the business side and all that. We had uh, Derek Bupard on last week, the senior Farry at Godolphin, that was super interesting. And um I learned a lot. I've always learned a lot talking to him, but I learned a lot about to get a horse ready for a race and all the rest of it and hopefully our audience picked up some stuff as well um i think today we want to try and figure out or focus on a bit more about really the lifestyle of a jockey now and and what it was like when you started out and i think i'll let becky kick off with actually just straight in with the questions because then there's some good ones today yeah so how and when did you decide to become a jockey um, I was pretty young. Uh, I grew up in Liverpool. I, I grew up on a council estate, so it's not the normal background to become a jockey. Um, I wanted to be a footballer, then realised very quickly I was never going to be a footballer because um, I, I stopped growing when I was about 11 <laughs> um, and I wasn't very good at football. Um, but I had a real interest in animals and horses. I loved horses. Um, and any time I could get to come in contact with horses, I took the opportunity. I used to love watching cowboy films and my dad always had racing on TV. And um, I, used to, I was obsessed with cowboy films and jumping on the back of horses and galloping away. And um, I remember being on holiday in North Wales when I was a kid, about 12, I'd never sat on a horse. And there was horses out in a field and um, all the kids bet me that I wouldn't jump on the back of one of them, which I did. I got on a stone wall and I held myself on top of a horse and I slid down its backside and it kicked me in the chest and I had um, knocked the wind out of me and I had a massive big horseshoe shaped bruise on my chest for about a month <laughs> and everyone said it was uh, it was a lucky omen and um, I just was really interested in horses and learned to ride at 14, um, left home a year or two after um, went to Ian Baldwin's yard as an apprentice and uh, the rest is history as they say. So was the first time that you got on a horse when you got thrown off and kicked in the chest? Yeah I decided to jump on the back of one it was in, in a field graze and I was on holiday in a in a um, in a caravan park and yeah that was the first time I ever sort of got on a horse and it lasted about three seconds but yeah I learned to ride I was about 14 um our local um, stables and I helped out and did jobs for them and they taught me to ride. Um, so that was um, the first part when I was about 14 really, which is 
quite late compared to some of the other jockeys, especially the Irish jockeys. They, they're, they're literally born on the back of a horse. And my family wasn't really into racing, so it was an unusual start. How do you um, how do you go from like 14, 15, doing odd jobs to suddenly like, right, I'm leaving home, moving quite far away, presumably, to, you know, quite an established yard that's quite, a, you know, a well-known name in racing and boarding and presumably quite an intimidating environment for someone who's quite young yeah it was it was a um it was a big lifestyle change for me i was on yeah i wasn't quite 16 i think and um it was my dad really because my dad followed racing he, he loved racing he was always in the betting shop always walked around with the pull out from one of the um tabloid newspapers in his back pocket and always had racing on on a saturday and um he followed ian balding's horses Ian Baldwin had a fantastic reputation with apprentice jockeys and they still do to this day. Andrew Baldwin obviously taken over. And um, my dad, this, he thought it would be better for me to go somewhere like Kingsclear rather than Newmarket or somewhere like that, where it's, I think, too many distractions. He thought I might get, um, <laughs> I might be better settled in a small village environment. And so my dad wrote a letter to Ian Baldwin, said I'd learned to ride a bit and, I was interested in be, trying to become a jockey and would he take me on? And he, he, duly, he duly wrote a letter back and said, yeah, bring him down. And that was it, really. My dad dropped me off. Um, and he, he said, don't get into any trouble. I haven't got any petrol money to come back and get you. And, um, <laughs> and, that, and that was it, really. So it was a, a massive change, like you say, to go from a council state in Liverpool to to um, dropped off on the doorstep and... But it was great. The Baldins have been fantastic. They were they were like a second family to me. Ian and Emma Baldin, they took me under their wing, taught me everything, not just about racing, about life in general, how to conduct yourself with people. And, you know, I, I, I owe a lot to that family for where I am today. How did you find the that sort of small village environment? Was there two pubs in Kingsclear or maybe even just one? I can't remember the last time we went there. But how, how was that, you know, did you get homesick? Did you want to go back at any point? Did you kind of figure this isn't for me, this is a bit quiet? Or, you know, what was your general thought when, once you got there? Do you know what? It's, it's, it's mad. I took to it really well. It's a good environment. They really look after you. I lived in a hostel there and they, you know, they all took me under the wing. And, but it was a, not just the village. It was a, it was a whole different set of circumstances you'll, you'll laugh you'll think I'm nuts but the first weekend I was there I remember Ian Baldwin said to me he said um, I'm going to take you hunting the weekend so I had to go hunting with him and I'm thinking what and it was drag hunting I don't know if you're familiar with it so my job was to run the line so you have to I set off it was middle of January it was freezing it was snowing and I had to set off before the before the hounds so an hour before, and I have to run for about seven miles with a canister of this awful smelling stuff. Scent, yeah. <laughs> and, a, and a sock and lay the scent for the hounds to follow and, and the hunt on horseback. And, and he gave me a map and dropped me off and said, follow the map and run the scent and we'll pick you up at the end. And um, it was at the back of Highclere Castle. I'll never forget it. I had holes in my trainers. It was freezing cold. The map I had disintegrated in the rain. I got lost and I'm wandering around aimlessly, cold and shivering. I'm wandering around for about an hour and then I heard these the, the hounds come over the hill and they're going mental and they're chasing me. So I dropped everything and climbed up a tree. 
So I'm sat up this tree and they're all at the bottom going barking and going mad, like as you can imagine. And Ian Baldwin, he, he galloped up to me and, and one of the, and he said to me, what the, what the hell are you doing up there, boy? And I was like, the dogs are going to get me. And then this other guy said, they're not dogs, boy. They're hounds. And I thought, this place is not for me. They don't even know what a dog is down here. And I, I said to him, I'm not coming down until you've gone. And, and they galloped off and left me up the tree. And I, I actually rang my dad that night and said, I'm not sure about this place. You know, they're, they're all a bit nuts down here. So it took a while to settle into country life and how things are down south. But I got the hang of it eventually. We're literally five minutes into this podcast. And I'm already crying. <laughs> I have that effect on most females. <laughs> what advice would you give to someone who is interested in becoming a jockey? I would say just work hard and um, keep believing. Never never give up on your dream because I was told early on, I remember at school at 14, 15, and everybody had a careers day and everybody had to stand up and and say what they wanted to be and, and you know, the normal, some wanted to join the army, some wanted to be footballers, wanted to be plumbers, some, and I stood up and said I wanted to be a jockey and everybody laughed. And um, somebody said, um, you know, more like a jock strap. And the careers teacher told me to be more realistic and think about something that was achievable. And um, I remember thinking, one day I'll prove you wrong. And I eventually did. And I remember when I won the derby, um, Radio Merseyside I, th I think that story was printed in a paper and Radio Merseyside <laughs> rang the teacher up and they got him to come on and but make sure you've got willing to work on because it's not a, nothing because easy okay hold on oh, sorry one sec we might have a little technical issue can you guys still hear me I can hear yeah okay fine sorry just uh, lost a little bit there I'm probably homeschooling and many other things all going on at once on the wi-fi um so I I hear you on the advice and not to give up. Now, years ago, um, I had a chat with our mutual mate, Fergus Sweeney, about this sort of thing, and especially getting into the world of racing when you're so young, like most of them do, as you said, especially in Ireland, where they start even younger. Do you think that the environment now is a bit easier um, in terms of, you know, the hard work aspect, of course, is always there, but the way people maybe are treated than when you started, you know, 20 odd years ago. Do you think that as society's moved on a little bit, that it's a little bit easier or do you think it's harder because of the, you know, the amount of competition there is and, you know, all that sort of stuff? I don't know whether it's got easier. It's certainly different. I mean, you know, the sport's evolving, everything's evolving and things change. Um, I don't think youngsters coming into sports to be jockeys are I don't think they have to go through so much like an old fashioned apprenticeship like like we had to do, I had to do. I think it's a lot things come a bit quicker now. You see jockeys, young youngsters come in at sixteen, seventeen and before you know it they're they're, they're riding full time. Um things come quicker for them. Um but also I think with that there are pitfalls. Some some go by the wayside, they don't make it um quickly. Um, with me, you know, I, I, I went to Ian Baldwin when I was 16. I didn't ride until I was, I had the first full season until I was 19. It took me two or three years to get established and to learn the trade. And then it was a bit of a slow burner. I think personally, my career benefited from that. But nowadays, everything seems to happen so much, so much more quickly. And I, I guess it works for some. They don't, but they don't have to put the work in and ground it in the yard every day. And for two, three years, it just comes quickly. 
But I think equally, like I said, some some fall by the wayside. They don't make in a year or two. They seem to be gone here one minute and gone the next. So I'd say it's definitely changed. Whether it's easier, I don't know. It's just, just different, probably. And um, you mentioned earlier that um, the Baldings is well known and still still up for their work with apprenticeships. How how did you kind of when you first first went down there and, and you're starting out? I mean, did someone explain to you your apprenticeship works like this? It's going to take you two three years to get going, or was it all a bit like, well, I'm here and I'm just going to get do what I'm told and just keep my head down, sort of thing? A bit of both, really. But you learned because when I was there, there was apprentice jockeys coming to the end of their sort of apprenticeships, so you learn off them. There was there must have been nearly 10 apprentice jockeys, all at different stages of their careers when I went there. So you learn from them and you, you pick things up. Um, there was a really good uh, a good guy called Seamus O'Gorman. He'd done really well, but he was coming to the end of his apprenticeship. Um, he ended up leaving and working for Godolphin after that. So I learned a lot from him and he taught me a lot. There was a guy, a lad called Francis Arrowsmith, who rode Loxon, very good horse. Um, and of course, Ian Baldwin himself, he, he taught me so much. So there seemed to be more time back then. There, was, there wasn't as much racing. There was no Sunday racing. And everybody seemed to have more time. So I was taught and, and, and learned quickly and learned from other people. Um, so, yeah, I, had a re- I, you know, I was very fortunate. I had a really good apprenticeship and, and it was all, everything was kind of explained to me. But I had full trust in, in Ian Baldwin and... Um, Whenever I needed to talk or anything explained, he, he did that really well. So I was very fortunate in that respect. We had a quest, well, quite a few questions come in, which all kind of were the same question um, about the highlight of your career. I imagine, as you've mentioned, probably winning the derby. But is there any other highlights that you can think of? Um, yeah, obviously winning the derby's biggest race in the world is the race every jockey wants to win. Um, especially winning it before Dettori did. I, I took a lot of pleasure in that as well. He kept ringing me that night. How does it feel? How does it feel? He kept saying he won it the next year for the first time. But um, yeah, the Derby, I've been very lucky. I've won some some really good races. Winning the Oaks in 2003 was very special because um, yeah, Andrew Baldwin had just taken over from his father. That was his first year with his licence. And um I rode my classic win in his first year and Ian was there and uh, people might remember Claire was working for the BBC at the time, Claire Baldwin, and she interviewed Andrew and and, and her father and, and they were sort of shocked. It was a great interview and um, I'm sure, I think it was Andrew and it, Andrew was nearly crying and I think Claire was. They were just overwhelmed and it was a great story and it was a great achievement and for me to be part of it, to win a classic, to win an Oaks for... Andrew and, and Ian and the whole family, you know, from what from where I started, getting dropped off that morning and that day at Kingsclere for me that was a, a special day, a special moment which I'll never forget. Um, but I've been very lucky. I've won some. I've won some big races and all around the world. So, but um, yeah, so I've got I've had a lot of uh, big highlights. Yeah, actually, just to us before Becky goes to the next question, one thing we we do talk quite a lot about on on this podcast or have done is. Is racing around the world and, and people's experience in different places now you've you've written all over the shop i mean we, we generally talk to people about dubai and all the, that sort of stuff where where would you is there a place that you could 
sort of uh, pinpoint as one of the sort of more odd places to to have raced, or somewhere that you know was was more of an experience than uh, than perhaps somewhere else. Um, in terms of in terms of I don't know whether odd, but very different was uh, riding in Japan is very different. Tokyo, I um I, I rode in the Japan Cup a few years ago. And that was that was surreal. I mean, the 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 fans out there, the racing fans, are just mental. There was there was over a hundred thousand people in the stands, and we went out onto the track. I mean, it was just unbelievable the amount of people. I remember walking around at the start, and it was a, it was just in front of the stands, so uh, we were pretty close to it. And then when the starter climbed up on his rostrum, we hadn't even started putting the horse in the stalls yet. The crowd went absolutely crazy, and the noise was unbelievable. And um, in terms of just it's totally different, that blew me away riding in, um, in Japan. It really is something else. So the uninitiated or just those who don't follow racing as, you know, terribly closely, how do you end up getting a ride in Japan? You know, is it, was it out of the blue or was it an agent thing or was it a trainer-led thing? It was a European horse. It was one of Andrew Baldin's, a horse called Phoenix Reach, who'd been running really well. I'd won three grade ones on him, three group ones abroad, one in Toronto, one in, I won the Shima Classic in Dubai, and he won in Hong Kong. Um, and he travelled all around the, all around the globe, and um, I rode him in Singapore, and I rode him in the Japan Cup. So uh, over a two-year period, um, he travelled a lot, and, um, and he won some big races, and I was very lucky to ride him. We had a great time. Yeah, I, we we really like getting into the overseas stuff because there is there is quite a lot, um, there's quite a lot of mainline differences. But I think also we don't get to see loads of international racing on on TV unless you're kind of plugged in watching the US stuff or or Dubai, and even just mentioning Toronto and um, and things like that. When you were younger, was that something you aspired to do to to be travelling for those races, or or was it did it seem quite far away when you were young? It did seem far away, but I do remember watching the Dubai Shim, the Dubai World Cup meeting when they first um and then one of one of the early 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 ones that I remember watching on TV thinking, wow, this is amazing. One day I'd love to compete and, and, and be involved in these things. Um so I, I was always interested in that and I was lucky. I mean, I've been really lucky and ridden in some great places. And also it's it's great to go abroad and see how they do it differently. Um, and I mean, look, racing is the same the world over. It's horses racing around a big field, basically. First one to the winning line. But every racing jurisdiction do things slightly different and some for the better, some for the worse. And But it's great to go and experience this and see how they do it differently. And, and in other countries, they do things like, I mean, the horse is the star of the show. It has to be. But I find as a jockey riding in some of these places, you are treated um, there's, you're treated better in some, some jurisdictions. You're treated as a superstar, and it's amazing. Over here, I don't think we get that. We just kind of um, sometimes, apart from the big meetings, Royal Ascot and that, you, you seem to be just almost kept in a room and just let out to ride the horse, and then that's it. You don't seem to... When you go to these places, you feel quite special. South Africa, I was there a couple of years ago and I was amazed. I had to do some press conferences and things and, and people treat you like you're a football star. It's amazing. 
you know, football player. It's amazing. And um, that's one of the things I'm looking forward to with the racing league, uh, you know, to, to sort of take racing to a wider audience and try and see the sport growing in, in, and move in that direction a bit more. I think sometimes we can be a bit too old-fashioned in our approach to racing in this country. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, on that topic, it's something that we've spoken about, you know, obviously, outside the company. Sorry, the dog, the dog has decided to come in the conversation <laughs> as well. Must be someone trying to get in through the back door. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, and we, we, we acknowledge that people from other sports are, are very aware of the people that are, that make up the whole of any competition. In any other sport, they know who the various actors are. And I think that sometimes you're right, in day-to-day -day racing, that can get lost. And of course, you're right, the horses are part of the show. But, you know, sometimes you can be watching a race and you wouldn't even know who was on who, and it just becomes very repetitive. And I think that racing league, hopefully, will, will help, um, especially, especially some of the younger jockeys who, who might not be as well-known, bring them to the fore and give them some media attention as well. Um, Becky, what's the next question you had? We had something about the Derby and now... Uh, yeah, so you've already won the Derby. What is your next big goal? Um, oh, that's a good one. I don't know. Um, I'd like to win it again. I thought I was gonna, <laughs> I thought I had a good chance this year and it went horribly wrong. Um, I'd just like to keep try and stay injury free, keep racing, and try and have some more success. Some big winners at Royal Ascot, and um, yeah, it's a good question. I haven't really thought about it. I've got a really good horse to ride this year, um, so. I just, um, I just hope he can win it. I mean, he's going to go for some really good Group One races. He's going to, he's going to, um, he's going to run in the Coronation Cup at Epsom on Derby Day. So, yeah, the near future, uh, I'm looking for. Hopefully, he can win a Group One this year. That's my, that's my goal for the, for the near future. That's for sure. When you were younger, did you sort of set yourselves goals each year? Like some jockeys will be like, I want to win. 200 races or something in the year were you ever like that or you just kind of live in the moment and sort of take it as it comes I've never been like that because I know racing has a way of um, it's a revolving door and the rug can be pulled up from under you at any moment so I don't plan and make goals I just I just keep going keep just keep working and um, try and get things right on the day and then when I get opportunities and good opportunities don't waste them I remember a few years ago I had a really good horse I'd won some races on him he was heading for the Breeders' Cup and the Breeders' Cup is is um, a big meeting and every jockey wants to ride a winner there and he had a great chance and I had a fall and, and broke both my arms so I couldn't ride him and he went and won so this mm. that's just racing so um, I don't I don't tend to make goals because there's no point you just live for the moment and um, on the day, do your best and um, don't waste opportunities. So actually earlier, you mentioned about staying injury free and then you just mentioned they're breaking both arms. And I think you said to me yesterday on the phone, you were, we were at Oaksy House yesterday. What, um, how's your career been injury wise? I mean, we obviously know the, the perils of riding a very large animal at high speed. Um, would you say you've been on the, the lucky side of it overall or would you say you've, You've, you've had some close scrapes. 
Well, I'd have to say I, I must be lucky because I'm still here. I'm still riding. Um, but I have been unlucky and had quite a lot of falls that were out of my control. Um, horses coming down in front of me and bringing me down. And I've had quite a few concussions and broken bones. And I was talking to Jamie Spencer. He had his first fall last year. First serious fall. And he had an operation and, and um, on his on his hip, his pelvis. And um, yeah, he, he's gone 20 years without a without a serious fall and I've quite I've had quite a lot and had a few operations and metal work put in and, and things but I'm still here still going so I suppose I've been lucky in that respect but that's just racing you've got to accept that anything can happen and with horses it's a dangerous sport I mean there's not many people go to work and get followed by an ambulance every day um, <laughs> so you just, I'm just nursing a bit of an injury at the moment I might have to have a steroid injection into my neck but I'm going to I'm going to wait until I get into the season a bit because I want to feel the benefit of it um, when it gets really busy. But um, touch wood, still, still here, still going. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, we had a lot of questions about uh, jockey nutrition and lifestyle. Would probably the easiest way to go about it. Would you be able to sort of take us through a typical day, or like day of the race, like from waking up, what you would do? <laughs> I'm afraid I can't answer that. There's no typical day. Um, I think in terms of fitness and nutrition, things have really improved since I first started. We've got Oxy House and other places around the country provided by the Indian Jockeys Fund. We're very lucky. We have nutritionists on hand and physios that look after us. It's a lot more professional now. In the old days, we just... I remember you wouldn't eat for a day or two and then when you've done your lightweight, you go out and have... Chinese meal and and um, glasses of wine, a few beers, and then move on to the next day. It's got a lot more professional. For me personally, I've been quite lucky. My weight's not too bad. Um, I have to keep an eye on it. And when I'm racing through the summer, I, I, li- I really just eat twice a day and small meals. And um, it's important to try not to skip meals. You've got to try and eat twice a day, but it's not always easy. I found it a benefit with COVID. We haven't had saunas, so we're not in the saunas every day, um, which actually it means I'm a little bit heavier, but it's a kind of a false economy, sweating hard too much. But I think every jockey has to find a balance of maintaining a lightweight, but also being strong and not overdoing it. And every jockey finds their own way of doing it. Um, there's no real, There's no real set rules to it. You've got to do what works for you, um, but it is—it's—it um, can be a difficult part of the job. That combination you, you mentioned there, I think, is the one that people don't really think of most. The combination of staying, staying, uh, making weight, and, but but still retaining the strength. I mean, we've seen recently lots of videos from various jockeys in lockdown and and how they train and. Uh, in the gym and, and elsewise with trainers and some of the stuff you know it looks it's intense it's hard work and of course you can't fuel your body as properly as, as perhaps other athletes because you're trying to keep the weight off do you ever i mean you're probably now so experienced that you, you kind of your body's on autopilot with it to some extent but when you're younger and you're still developing did you ever get that bit where you, you feel like you're not quite as strong as you could be because you just you know you need to eat a bit more because uh, I mean, I, I know from playing, you know, amateur sport, like those days when you know you've got a big day, whether it's whatever sport you play, you're trying to eat enough that you've got a lot of energy and you feel strong and the rest of it. I mean, did that ever, when you were young, did that ever 
was that a psychological thing to just sort of get over yeah you have to you have, you have to learn to to not to set your boundaries of of the the weight that you do and um some jockeys have overdone it i mean i've done it in the past i've done a, a weight that's way too light and i've lost too much weight and then you dehydrate yourself and then there's times where i've cantered to the start and um you just don't feel right in the head because you just dehydrate yourself you feel like you're if you've ever been in a swimming pool and you go underwater and you, you can hear noises and you can hear things but it's distorted you, you you get to that point where you're hearing things like that that's when you know you've dehydrated yourself too much mm. so you have to be really careful and it's really it's experience that that teaches you to set your boundaries and not go over them because um you, you know you, you you lose all that weight you're riding a race and then ultimately you can mess up and make a mistake or you're not fit to ride so you have to you have to be careful but there's a lot more help now with nutritionists and things and there's a lot more guidance now but um really every jockey has to just be sensible with it and set their own guidelines do you have to weigh yourself multiple times a day or have you got to that point where you kind of know you can just feel feel how heavy you are in a way yeah, I, I mean, you know, I used to early on in my career weigh myself every day and worry about it. Now I'm not too bothered, especially over the last couple of months being on lockdown and stuff. And sometimes you dread, I've had a few days after you think, I'm not weighing myself because I'll just put myself in a bad mood. Mm. So I'll wait until I know I've got to ride and then I'll jump on the scales and then I'll then I'll go, oh, Jesus. And then I'll start running and panicking and get on the bike and do some, mm. you know, get down to the weight. But um yeah, everyone does it differently, like I say, but sometimes it can be a mental thing. If you let it get into your mind too much and you're weighing yourself all the time, I mean, you hear some, I've seen some some of the lads, uh, you know, really, I've seen lads weighing food and stupid things like that. I mean, I remember Richard Hughes years ago, all he ate was quavers because he thought they were light. <laughs> he had about, <laughs> about 12 bags of quavers on the way racing because he said they can't weigh much, look at them. I remember, I remember waking up in a hotel room. We'd been out, me and Houston, we'd had probably we'd had a few glasses of wine and go straight ahead when you haven't been eating. So we wake up and you go, we woke up in a room, we're like, Oh, you know what? I feel light today. Yeah, yeah. And then and then we looked over and went, What's that? And there was um kebab wrappers and chip wrappers on the side that we and we're like, Oh no, what have we done? <laughs> um, you know, we'd eaten the night before and forgotten about. But um it can be it can be a bit of a, a struggle for, for some jockeys. I've been pretty lucky. And besides um, the sort of nutritional challenges, um, what are so what would you say are the main challenges of being a jockey? The M25, the <laughs> M4, the M1, Preach. <laughs> the 50 mile an hour limits, the traffic, that is the bane of my life. I mean, Chris Rear wasn't joking, was he, when he said the road to hell? Mm -hmm. It's the travelling. And unlike other countries, I mean, the people, jockeys have come here from Australian places and rode for a year and gone home and said, I can't cope with this anymore. We race every day and we can be riding in Brighton on the south coast on a Monday and riding in Hamilton, Scotland the next day and then back down to Goodwood. I mean, it's crazy. We're just in and out of cars and, you know, it, it is crazy what we do and no other country does it like we do it. And, um, it's just, uh, yeah, that's the hardest part. And that's what's, like I said earlier, different about riding in other countries. Um, a lot of countries, uh, the, the racing's based on one track and jockeys seem to stay there. 
and live live local and then race two, three times a week and everybody knows them and, and they have a sort of a nicer lifestyle and people know them more and they're treated differently. Whereas here, it, sometimes it does feel like we're on a hamster wheel. Yeah, I remember when I first moved to, to Marlborough actually and started to get to know well, yourself and Fergus and Brian and you know other people that are in racing around here in Lambourne and I just couldn't believe the amount of driving. I mean, trainers as well, right? I mean, it's just that thing. I mean, you're obviously up early after the work's finished, right? Get the horses ready and driving from Marlborough to Newmarket. I mean, that's just the pain pain in the ass drive of all time. But doing it two, three times a week, you know, sometimes in the summer, whatever it is, it's um, it's remarkable, really. And I mean, how many miles do you reckon you do in a year on your car? Maybe you know. Um, well, actually, I've just, I haven't quite had my car a year and I've done 30,000 miles. Right, and that's, and that's with lockdown as well. Not yeah. As much race. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we didn't race for a couple of months. And that's yeah, so... You're talking, you're talking 40,000 a year easily. God, it's so many. Yeah, and uh, do you know the thing about that, and people don't, will, will not appreciate this, but if you if you think of other other sports, the luxury in which people or players especially travel, and the idea that you'd finish, <laughs> the thought that you'd, tonight Spurs are playing Liverpool, the thought that all those guys would finish playing in London, North London at 10 o'clock at night and then have to drive themselves back to Liverpool um, is just just completely unheard of. Yeah, as you say, and, and of course, this like only recently has there been a limit on on jockeys not doing two meetings in the same day, if not three meetings. So you know, the idea of of, of, a, of a day meeting somewhere, then packing the car, going to Wolverhampton, then Wolverhampton back here, and then to be up to to, to ride work in the morning as well, right? I mean, it's not just it's 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 the position it leaves you in for the next day. Yeah, it's it's funny. We've I've been saying for years, and, and a few other jockeys, we've said we we should only really do one meeting a day, um, but not everybody agreed. But due to COVID, that was enforced on us. I think a lot of people are seeing the benefits now. I mean, to go back to um, doing two meetings a day now, I think it, I think it would be a backward step because, um, like you say, it's crazy. I mean, can you what we you know riding at Royal Ascot all week, and then you you're rushing off from Royal Ascot, getting in a car and legging it over to Lingfield for an evening meeting and then go back to Royal Ascot the next day. It'd be like a tennis player playing at Wimbledon and then legging it out and jumping his car and driving around the M25 to play tennis the other side of London in the evening and then go back the next day. It is it is crazy the way we've been doing it. And I think I think it's, it's been a change for the better and hopefully it stays mm. in that way because it's just... You, 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 I mean, I've gone out to ride in a last race in the afternoon and I'm, I'm down at the start and I'm and we're talking about oh what's the traffic and somebody says oh yeah we heard this the M25's blocked or something and we're worrying about getting to the evening meeting and not necessarily the horse we're about to ride mm. so I um I do hope I hope it stays in stays in the one meeting rule because it's definitely it's definitely better for us if I asked you what superpower you would have it would probably be teleportation <laughs> yeah definitely it's um it's crazy how we've done it for so long now and I mean legging it across to I mean I when I won the derby I nearly didn't ride because I, I rode on the day before at Epsom obviously Oaks Day and then I, I got a helicopter across to ride in the evening at Bath and I took a fall in the paddock today and 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 cracked my ribs and nearly couldn't ride the next day I mean imagine if that had happened um so I, especially for the big festivals it's better to just be there 
and ride that day and then refresh and recoup and go back the next day and ride. Um, yeah, the evening. I mean, you can, you know, if you haven't got good rides on, on the afternoon, you just ride in the evening. But definitely one metre in a day is the way forward. Yeah. Um, I remember speaking to you briefly after our launch event in London and we were talking about um, online abuse and how I believe you don't have Twitter. Um, am I right in saying that? Yeah, I don't have Twitter. I've, I've got Instagram and I can just about work it a little bit. Um, <laughs> have you received um, a lot of like online abuse? Like if you've like, you know, had a, like a bad day, have you ever seen any of that? I've seen lots of it, yeah. I mean, I, certainly most of it, a lot of the younger generation, the younger jockeys are a bit more savvy with tech and they're all on social media platforms. And if they, you know, if they choose to go on it, you've got to accept you're going to get grief. Um, and people lose the money and get angry and get upset. And these, these things are just a platform for people to vent their anger, aren't they? Anyone can say anything to you. So you, I don't know, you have to take it with a pinch of salt. Um, Jamie Spencer is very good at it. He normally writes something smart back and then blocks them. Um, and there are genuine people out there who want to, you know, like to get in touch with you know, proper racing fans and want to talk. And some of the jockeys are really good at communicating, which is good. But equally, you're going to get abuse, unfortunately. I remember I had a guy texting my phone. I don't know how he got my number. I rode a horse one day at Kempton. I went around the inside. I couldn't get it off the rail. And it was, and I'm holding on to it. And he's, and I came in and told the trainer there was something wrong with this horse. And I said, I, I had to hold on to his head. It felt like he was going to, he was going to fall. He was not moving right. And, and um, Dave Vets x-rayed his knee and he had a broken bone in his knee and it, he had to have an operation. Didn't run for six months after that, but some guy had had his money on and he, he started texting me and giving me all kinds of abuse because he thinks I haven't tried to win the race. And, you know, you, you, these people, they don't necessarily understand but unfortunately, it's modern day life, isn't it? People get on these Twitter and whatever and, and say whatever they want. It's not just jockeys, other sportsmen. But um, yeah, there's there's plenty of that goes on, I'm afraid. Have you ever had it, um, you know, pre-social media? Did you ever get any grief face-to-face, -face, as it were? Has anyone ever been terribly upset with you after a ride at the races or in the pub or whatever? Um. Normally the wife when I come home if she's watched racing. <laughs> now, um, now and again, but I, I have to say, in all the years I've been riding and the amount of days I've gone racing, it's only happened less than five times where you get somebody hurling abuse at you. I remember a good friend of mine was at um, Haydock and he played. He was captain for Everton at the time, Alan Stubbs, and he came to Haydock and he um, and he said to me, "You jockeys get away with it. You don't get any abuse like we do." when they're coming off the pitch at half-time and whatnot. He said, you get away with you don't get it. I said, well, a bit more of a gentleman's sport, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll try and wrap things up fairly shortly. We, we did have a couple more questions, but I'm actually, Becky, just going to jump on the, on the... We already kind of talked about some changes. It's just, we had Jamie Osborne on the other day, who you'll know well, um, great character in racing. Um, he, we were asking him a little bit about his transition from... Um, well, in his case, from jump jockey to flat trainer, it's quite a transition. Um, he mentioned about how networking, networking was important and, you know, changed the, his, his attitude from the one of being a jockey to becoming a trainer. Have you got any interest in training or, I mean, I know we do, you do a lot of media already with racing TV. You've been 
uh, quite a bit on the radio, Five Live and others. Have you got the training thing in your head or are you looking at the media route? Yeah, I don't think training would be really for me. Um, I've, I've, you know, I've seen how difficult it can be and I would really, I don't think I'd have the skill set to go into training because as a jockey, you don't, you don't, you don't see the um, important things, feeling horses' legs and the, the, the background for, for it all. It would take me too long to learn it and um, it just doesn't interest me. I think the major route will be a, a, the route I'll probably go down when I do stop riding because, um, I mean, I talk nonsense every day. I might as well talk nonsense and get paid for it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm judging that by the fact that I've been doing these podcasts now for 12, 12 times in a row, so maybe I'll join you. Um, <laughs> what we do each week, uh, Becky asks um, our guests uh, kind of the same questions so I'm going to hand you over to uh, to face the dreaded 10 questions and uh, we'll learn a lot about you based on your answers. Yeah so it's nine questions uh, two questions in each question and you just tell us um, which one you prefer. Okay. Right number one Cheltenham or Ascot? Ascot. Tea or coffee? Uh, Tea. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Sunset or sunrise? Oh, that's a tricky one. Uh, sunset. City or countryside? Oh, that's it. Oh, city. Liverpool City. <laughs> Bar or pub? Aren't they the same thing? Well, I would class like a pub, like a really nice like country pub, and then like a bar in London, like think of like all bar one or like all those cocktaily places. I'd probably prefer a traditional boozer than a pub with a with um football on, not one of these posh fancy bars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, red wine or white wine? Depends. In the winter, red wine. In the summer, nice white. Football or rugby? I think I know the answer to this one. R- football. <laughs> <laughs> Final question. Sprinters or stayers? Mm, yeah. Um, I think I'll have to go with stayers, probably because I, I rode one of the best ones. That was Persian Punch. I really enjoyed riding him. He was a superstar. So stayers. Yeah, back to form. We've only had a few a few put their hands up for sprinters and, um, yeah, everyone loves a trier. Um, look, Mark, thanks very much. We'll let you get on. It's um, it's coming up for two o'clock. I'm, what are you up to today? What's going on? Um, I don't know. I've just come back from Oakley House and I've done everything. I'm just going to have a chill out. I'll, I'll probably, uh, probably cook some dinner. I might do, get adventurous in the kitchen. See, pre-lockdown, we could have arranged to go for a quick beer before we started cooking, but we're going to have to yeah. wait till, <laughs> till March, I think, uh, by the sounds of it, or whenever it might be. So, um, look, thanks for coming on. Um, I'm sure you'll be back on when we start doing the Racing League podcast proper um, later in the year. Um, we'll get you on with some of the guys and um, bring out some of the old stories. Um, Becky, thanks as ever for joining um, and we'll catch up with you in the week and uh, yeah, thanks everyone and uh, we'll catch up with you next time. Great. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks, Becky. Thank you.